Great singing this morning. Great. I don't know if you guys picked up on the theme of grace this morning, but it's there. Um, man, I don't know. I get, uh, I get emotional just thinking a lot of, as we're singing these songs and thinking of who Jesus is and what he's done just for me personally. And I can't imagine how it feels for all of you with all of your stories. Well, this morning, um, we're going to jump back into Revelation. As, as, as I said a few weeks ago, we're going to be going through this book of Revelation start to finish. I, I don't know how long it's going to take, but this is week three. <laughs> um, and, and I have to tell you, this, I have to control myself in my studying because I wanna, I, like, there are so many rabbit trails to go down through. As you're reading Revelation, it feels like every single word has like five meanings. Have, have, has anyone felt that when you're reading through it? It's, everything you read, it's like, wow, this could mean this, this, and this. And the truth is, I think it does mean this, this, and this. I think that when Jesus wrote these letters, when he looked at John, he said, hey, put this, to, this, this pen on paper and send this out to the churches. He, he knew what he was saying every time he said a specific word because there was so much weight that was carried in each one of them. Well, last week we looked at a couple of these churches here. We talked about how Jesus uh, wrote, the, wrote these letters through the pen of John and he, he spoke to the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus... He basically said, you guys are a loveless church. You've lost your love and your passion. And so his response to them, because of their problem, the fix was, you must repent. Stop doing what you're doing. And he says, return to your first love. Your first love for me. Your first love for my people. And your first love for the lost. I want you, I want you to stoke that fire. Rekindle that passion to reach the world for me because of me and through me. So that was Ephesus. That was the first church that we looked at. And so this, then the next church was this church in Smyrna. And this we would call the persecuted church. This was a church that when Jesus looked at it, he, he came through and, he, and he, he set his title up. He said who he was. And he had nothing bad to say about the church. Because this church was doing it right. And so what he looked at them and he said, I know you're persecuted, but do not fear persecution. He said, don't back down. Continue to stand up. Be faithful even if it means your death. Prepare for the persecution that's coming. And I, I mentioned um, Polycarp, who was a, a martyr, who was martyred in, in Smyrna. Um, martyr is a faithful witness, someone who dies for a cause and for this, dies for his testimony in Jesus Christ. And that was the church in Smyrna. So, this morning... I want to tell you a quick story. There were a few years ago, actually more than a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, I'm thinking, um, I had an opportunity to go to my first NFL regular season football game. And, I, and if, if you know me, you know that the NFL is something that I, am, I, I get super excited about. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I could talk two things all day long, Jesus and, the, and football. Just because I, I love them both and I, and I mix them together sometimes. You get me talking about football, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I do it all the time with people. But one of the, the, the great things about the NFL is, is I love certain players. There are certain players that I attach to and certain teams that they're attached to. Well, one of the players, players I really, really like to watch is Tom Brady, yes. Now, this isn't about Brady, okay? I'm not, I'm not going there with that this morning. But 10 years ago, he played for the Patriots. So um, I was all in on, on the Patriots and what they were doing. And, and I had an opportunity to go to a Patriots-Ravens game in Baltimore. Yeah. yeah. You guys are hearing it already, right? That's almost as bad as, as being a Patriots fan going to a Philadelphia Eagles game. 
you know. But I went to this Ravens game, and it was really, it was, it was a really amazing time. Rode down there, me, Katie and I did, and we went with um, my friends who were all Ravens fans. I mean, they were hardcore Ravens fans. I mean, we were so hardcore that like a couple years before or later, I can't remember, the Patriots were, were going to be playing in Massachusetts, Foxborough, against the Ravens, and we considered spending all kinds of money to go up there and watch the game. Glad we didn't because we lost, but anyway. So we go to this game. I ride down with some Ravens fans, and, and wouldn't you know it, I'm wearing my Brady jersey. Yeah, Katie had her Brady jersey on too. It was pink, so hers didn't quite stick out as much. You kind of had to really look at the names. But here's a picture. I know it's not a great picture, but this is a picture of us in, in Baltimore. And we are standing in the middle of what? Ravens country. And I have to tell you, I despise the Ravens. And I really, really struggle with Ravens fans if you're not my friends, and even if you are. So I'm glad Keith and Jonathan aren't here today because they'd be hating on me, the Ravens fans. But anyway, so we're here, and and we got our jerseys on, and we are right dead center in the middle of Ravens country. And I like this picture because what's the sign in the back say? Play like a Raven. But I'm wearing a Patriots jersey. Do you think I stuck out that day? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, people looked at us, and some of the, the, the faces they made at me or Kate were walking along were just full of disdain. I mean, you could tell they just hated us because we were Patriots fans. I mean, and, and we were pretty big rivals, and we would win some, and they would, they would win some. And, well, we got here to this game, and it was a great day. It was an amazing day to be a Patriots fan because we, we had okay tickets. We were kind of up, uh, kind of higher on the first section there, and the Patriots just clobbered them. And what happens when you're in a, a stadium, an away stadium, and the, the, I mean, a home stadium and the away team is winning, is the home fans start to leave. <laughs> and it was really cool because Katie and I, we got to keep moving down a row at a time. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they were up like 40 to 10 or something at one point. And so we, we start way high up with our Patriots jerseys on sitting in the middle of a bunch of fans who are Ravens jerseys and they're yelling and cussing and throwing stuff, whatever they're doing. And, and they're, they're slowly trickling out and we slowly make our way. We got all the way behind the Patriots bench. I mean, I was from me to Katie to Tom Brady and I was like, <laughs> I'm like yelling his name, Brady, look at me, just look at me. I want to know if you're real. No, but we're, so we're here, we're looking, I'm looking at all the teammates, I'm yelling them out and I got this Patriots gear on and finally the game ends and one of the players comes up and he comes right up next to me and Katie. And there's me and there's some ladies over here. And, and I'm like, sign my jersey. And I took it off. <laughs> I had a shirt underneath. But I got this guy to sign my jersey. And I didn't have a pen. So this lady had gold lip gloss and lipstick. And she signed it. It's still on there. It's still on there to this day. But anyway, so the whole point of that was that we were at a Ravens game with Ravens fans. Supposed to be cheering for the home team. And we stuck out like a sore thumb. Everybody that looked at us in that stadium knew we didn't belong. They knew that we were different. They knew that we didn't match. And you know what? I thought about it before going to that game. Do I really want to go to Baltimore with my wife and wear Patriots gear? I mean, Baltimore, the crime rate in Baltimore is pretty high. Do I really want to do it? And I said, no, I'm not going to compromise. I am a Patriots fan. I'm a Brady fan. I'm excited. I'm going to wear this jersey. And so we went wore the jersey, got it signed to the chagrin of my friends who drove us home, got it signed, and it was just a great day. 
But the whole point of this thing is we didn't compromise and we came out victorious in the end. We came out victorious in the midst of a sea of fans that were against us. Well, the church I want to talk about today is a church called Pergamum. To the angel in, in the of the church in Pergamum, Revelation 2 verse 12, Jesus is talking and he, and he says to John, write this letter to this church. And he says to the, to the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Okay, so what's the setup? We're looking at Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. And we're going to be talking about the compromised church. Because that's what the church of Pergamum was. It was compromised. It represented compromise. And as I said last week, we're going to be moving through these churches and we're going to be looking at a few different things. We're going to be looking at the literal focus. These seven churches were churches that actually existed in actual cities in the time, at the time of this writing, right at the end of the first century AD. And so these churches were, these letters, they went and, and John sent the letter, and it was, it was sent it to the first church, and it would get passed around to the next church. And so all seven churches got the letters that went to all seven churches. And so they all got to read what came before them and what was coming later. But in this moment, there was this church at a place called Pergamum. Well, what's the location? I hope you can see this. I, I try to find a good picture. It's really hard, you know, copyright and all this stuff, and I, and I can't draw that well. So here's what we did. There's Pergamum. You can see the, bright, the big red star at the top left, okay? And if you're trying to understand where the, the, the place in the world is we're talking about, you can see that, that little square on the top right. It's in modern-day Turkey. So you can see where Greece is. You can see where Italy is. You see the Mediterranean Sea. But we're talking about the spot there where the, the little red star is next to Turkey. That is where these seven churches were. And it's really important to understand the location because to the left of this, you have Greece and Italy. And who was, who was from Italy? The Italians were known as, what? The ones from Rome, the Romans. Well, this whole world was under the control of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, they, they were trying to get their, um, their ideologies and their philosophies kind of passed over and transitioned across all cultures to make it all one culture of the Roman Empire. But what they, they weren't able to do it completely. They had no bridge from the west to get to the east because this area of Turkey, this area of Asia Minor, was not theirs yet. But there came a point where in the city of Pergamum, I believe that the, the king's name or the ruler's name was Attalus, Attalus II, he decided one day that at his death, he was just going to give up his throne and, and, and kind of... Uh, you know, when you die, you give your inheritance. He decided to give his inheritance over to the Romans. And so he handed over all control of the city of Pergamum. Okay, and I'm going to refer to it as Pergamum today, but if you look it up online, you can see Pergamon, Pergamum, Pergamos, whatever. But this is where, it's, it's the modern day city of Bergam, something like that, okay? But this is, this is a strategic location. Because as you can see, the roads, it is the first point there where the Romans would take, and they could take that and go, they could go north, they could go east, they could go south, and they could take their ideologies and go on. Now, this is really um, something to th be thinking about as we go through. And now, a lot of these churches are all going to have the same 
um, struggles because the Roman Empire and its, and its philosophies are moving across every single one of them. And so this place in Pergamum was really strategic. And if you want to know what Pergamum was, a, was about, well, let's just say Ephesus was like New York City. Okay? A lot of hardworking it was, it was a cold attitude, you know? They're not super friendly. Remember, they were a loveless church. So if that was New York City, Pergamum was Washington, D.C. And so what do we see in D.C.? Well, when you think of D.C., what do you think of? You think of the president, right? You think of um, Capitol Hill. You think of politics. Well, that's what Pergamum was. It was a place where the Roman, um, the, the Senate for the provinces resided. It was a place that's known for its political power and prowess. But that wasn't all. It was also a very, very popular place for religion. But let's get back to the topography here for a second. Pergamum means elevated, height, or citadel, stronghold. Something like a stronghold that was elevated. It was, it was, it was up high. They could see around, so it was very fortified. And so a lot of the, the, um, the kings from the day, they would... They would put their gold and they would put it there in Pergamum to store it to keep it safe. Just so that we understand what this is. Well, in, in Pergamum, there was this place called the Acropolis. It was the upper city. And it was at least 1,000 feet high. Some people say 1,000, some say 1,300. Regardless, it was pretty high. And this was on the top of the mountain. And you can see just this beautiful place that was built. And what's crazy is that this has been nearly 100% excavated to this point. So our archaeologists are there just digging and showing and getting all this stuff in place. And you can see the outlines. And it's, I would love to go there. It'd be really amazing. But, you know, I have to live on pictures and 3D and all that. But anyway, so that's the Acropolis. So when I, when I mention the word the Acropolis or the upper city, this is what I'm talking about. So imagine this place is up high. And in this Acropolis were the problems. Hopefully you can read that. The Pergamum religion. One person said that, um, Joe Stoll from Our Daily Bread, he talked about Pergamum and this idea of its religion and its various gods and temples and goddesses and temples and, and cults and all these different things. And he said, it's as if, if, you, if you wanted to go to anywhere that had somewhere that had all the religions and anything, any god you could ever think of, that was where you would go. So if you wanted to see a star in the United States, if you really wanted to see somebody famous, where would you go? you go to Hollywood, right? You walk around and try to see a, every, every, every block you're hoping to see somebody. That's where you would go. You would go to Pergamum to see and get anything and everything that you would need. At least that was the hope. And so a lot of these places, they had altars and temples. Well, there was an altar of Zeus. Well, in the Roman world, in the ancient world, Zeus was known as the king of kings. The God of gods, the God of creation. He was the all-powerful God. Have you heard of Mount Olympus? Have you heard of the pantheon of the gods? He was the one that was in charge and in control of all of them. So when you think of power, you would think of Zeus. You know, we sang a song this morning, and in it there was that line, King of Kings, talking about Jesus, right? So I wanted you to think for a second. As we're going through these gods, history lesson. It's not just for history. I want you to understand the world that they're living. In fact, let's put you there right now. Let's act like Pergamum is your city. In your city, this is what, this is what you're experiencing. You're experiencing a world that is 
clouded and, and, and you're being pushed and pressed from every side to see and believe and honor the altar, honor the God of Zeus, who is considered the one with all the power, the king of kings. And then you've got the temple of Athena. We've heard of Athena before. Athena was a warrior goddess. She was somebody that was um, wise. So if you needed wisdom, if you wanted to know how, how to, to plan things out, if you needed help in strategizing something, the temple of Athena is where you would go. And you would offer a sacrifice to get her good, goodwill and have her pour favor out on you. If you wanted power, you go to Zeus. Well, then you also want that you had the temple of Trajan. Now, Trajan was one of the Caesars. Trajan... This idea, this temple of Trajan, was that you would go there and it was always the one that was in place. In fact, it was the first temple that was built in honor of Caesar in the ancient world. And so what you would do is you would go into that temple and you would pay homage to Caesar. You would, you would give your allegiance to Caesar. And by the way, Caesar was described and he was written in inscriptions as the Son of God. The one who would bring peace and safety, peace and prosperity. In fact, Caesar Augustus was given those inscriptions and those titles. Okay, Caesar, remember Caesar Augustus in the days of Caesar Augustus? Who was born? Jesus Christ. The true son of God. The true bringer of peace and safety and reconciliation. The true one who would bring remission of sins. But this was what was expected. This is what was believed about Caesar. In fact, when it came to Caesar, they believed that Caesar was a bridge builder between God and man. They believed that he was able to connect the heavens to the earth. And so he was the mediator. Are you getting it? Are you seeing what they're dealing with? So if you're living in Pergamum in this time, and you're a Christian, and you're reading the letter of John that says Jesus is the King of Kings, Jesus is the way of the truth and the life, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is your salvation, and yet you're walking around through town and everywhere the signs say, Caesar is Lord. There's a struggle. So for peace and safety, you saw Caesar. If you needed a good, good harvest, you're a farmer. You know, you've got a season coming up where you really need to make some money. You want to put food on the table for your family. Well, then you go into the temple of Demeter. And that's, that's where she, um, she's the goddess of the grain and the harvest, as you can see up here. Agriculture and fertility of the earth. If you wanted your daily bread, you prayed to Demeter. You tracking? Then you've got the temple of Dionysus, the god of wine. This one, this one's crazy. Dionysus was the god of wine, the god of, of the grape harvest. And so if you picture this god, you would see him with, with uh, uh, grapes in his hands because he was, he was the one that was all about the revelry and the partying, the arts. Jeb, if you were a pagan, you would have loved this guy. Don't be a pagan. Dionysus, the theater. He's also the god of insanity and ritual madness. So he's the god that you go to and you get worked up into a frenzy. And if you, if you wanted to um, have a good time, if you wanted to be okay with having a good time, you went to the temple of Dionysus. 
You went there and you drank and got drunk and, and took in all levels of debauchery. And what would, what would happen then is a lot of times the, the, um, it would get so crazy and so insane, the festivities would grow so mad that they would, they would end in, in human sacrifice. People would be killed and it was okay because it came all under the guise of Dionysus. Well, you, know what, you, want, to, you want to know about this, this guy Dionysus, what, what they believed about him is that he was killed and resurrected back to life. And so if you wanted to live a full life, Dionysus is who you went to. And then you get the healing center here of Asclepius, the god of healing and medicine. This one was absolutely crazy. Asclepius. It's, the wor- it's where we get the word scalpel from. Asclepius. It, is, it was the god where, where it, it, was, it was actually in the lower city. So all these other gods were in the upper city. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you there now. I'm going to show you this. Okay, so this is a picture of, of where these temples were. So you see the temple of Trajan up on the left. You see Athena on the top there. You see the Demeter temple over here. It's, it's actually out of the frame. You can't see it. And the Dionysus temple, look where it's located, right next to the, the theater. Because this is what they would do. They would take the theater, and if they wanted to normalize something that was uncommon... If they wanted to get society and culture to shift and change and be okay with something that was taboo, they would present it in the theater. And then people would watch the theater. They would watch the arts. They would take part and see what was happening. And they would think that is who we're supposed to be. That's what we should be aiming for. This was the society they lived in. They lived in a society that... This theater, you see the theater in the middle? It it was the largest theater in the ancient world. It could seat 10,000 people. And and I was um, watching some videos on this and and people talking about being there. There were were pastors and stuff who said that they were at the base of the theater all the way down as if they were an actor. And they, they said they could speak in a regular tone. And with full clarity, it would be heard at the top seat. Brilliant. Amazing acoustics. Do you see the city they're living in? They would do crazy things in the theater to normalize what was wrong. Dionysus, the temple, the theater, they go hand in hand. It was Netflix. It was Hulu. It was Amazon Prime. It was HBO Max. It was... I don't even know secular musicians anymore, but it, it, it was these people that you see at, at the music awards that are dancing with no, barely any clothes on. It's, it's, the, it's the same-sex attraction um, culture that's saying it doesn't matter if God designed you a certain way because God is not God and he didn't design you as a man or a woman. You're allowed to choose. That's the kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff that you would watch in there and, and you would see in the theater and you'd be indoctrinated and you would be made to think that it was okay. But the altar of Zeus. Okay, you see where the altar is over there on the right? This is a model, an overhead model of what that looks like. And you can see in the front, um, 
you can see something called a frieze all the way around it with, with this story being told. And it's a story of the pantheon of the gods. It's the gods versus the titans. And it's, it tells the story of how Zeus wins. And Zeus is in charge and Zeus is in control. And all the gods that are with him, they beat out the titans. And here in Berlin is the actual altar of Zeus. Someone excavated it and took it piece by piece Literally, and they set it back up in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin in the 1900s. See how big it is? Remember I talked about the Asclepian Healing Center? This is a picture of it. The Asclepian Healing Center was actually in the base of the, at the base of the mountain in the city, the city proper. It wasn't in the upper city. And so when you're down here in the city... And you're walking around and you look up. That's what you see above you. You see this amazing strategic um, place. It's beautiful. You see, you see the altar of Zeus up there. And from the altar of Zeus, there was constantly 24-7 sacrifices being made. So this smoke was constantly rising up and this fire. And you see it from the base there. And this Asclepian healing center Here's a better picture of it. You're down here. And if you had anything that you needed, if, you, if your child was sick, and it's day two, and you know that day three, the kids are dying of fever. I got to go see this God. I got to go see the, I got to go to the doctors. You see, this was the Mayo Clinic living in your backyard. It's Johns Hopkins. It was the best hospital in the world. It had all the best doctors. And these doctors were actually priests of Eclepius. And they thought that they got their power from this God, this false God. And what's really crazy about this thing, they would take you in there and they would do whatever they needed to do to try to get you better. And if it didn't work, they'd, jump, they'd step it up a notch. And they'd give you this stuff and it would put you in a trance. And they'd continue to work on you. And then they would put you in a pitch black room and have you sleep overnight in this trance-like state. And they'd let the snakes in. And the snakes would crawl over your body and it was said that you would be healed. It's crazy, huh? People do this in churches today. It's compromise. It's tying into the pagan world. That's what they believed. And, and the thing about the snakes, why they... Um, why they thought snakes were important, why they, it's because snakes shed their skin and become a new creature, right? Everything that was bad and old about them falls off and they become new again. And they, they're bigger, faster, stronger. And that's what it was with the snake. And wouldn't you know that the symbol for Asclepius was the Asclepian staff. You see it there on the left? Do you notice the symbol of the World Health Organization? the Asclepian staff. You see, we brought that forward into our society. In fact, the, the symbol for, for medicine in the United States is, is something similar. It's got two snakes intertwined, and, and that was actually a mistake. It's based on um, Caduceus or something else, but um, it, it was meant to be this Asclepian staff, and it goes back to the days of this. This is the society and the culture that they are living in. Anytime they had a problem, a need, a desire, a want, anything, they had anything, they could go up on the mountain or they could go to the hospital and all they needed to do was offer their allegiance to that God. 
All they needed to do was compromise their Christianity and say, yes, Jesus is amazing, but my kid is sick and he's not doing anything about it. I'm going to go to these guys. You couldn't even go to the doctor there and get it. Um, even if you didn't want to have anything to do with the pagan stuff, unless you offered allegiance to the God of Asclepius. So when Jesus writes and he says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, he comes in and he's displaying power. He's saying, hey guys, listen up. I am the one with power. Well, why? Where do I get that? Well, the the double-edged sword in verse um, verse 12. This idea of a double-edged sword was the symbol of Roman strength. It was the symbol of the leadership of the Romans. And, and, and the, the, the governor of the province, they were given the power to execute capital punishment for anything that they wanted. And so when the governor would walk through the town or the city and he would come along, someone would walk in front of him and hold up this huge double-edged sword. And, and when people saw that sword, there was fear in their eyes. They were afraid because they didn't know what he was going to do. And Jesus says, to the angel, sorry, I've got to get to the verse, of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. He says, I know that you fear the Caesar. I know that you fear the man. But I'm telling you, you should fear God. Because I'm the one with the power. So, as I said last week, I'm going to go through the good, the bad, the fix, and the reward for each of these churches. Well, here we're looking at the good. And Jesus continues in verse 13. And he says, I know where you live Okay, I have stuff italicized, underlined, bolded, whatever. I, I'm doing all these things so that every single bit of it can be pointed out so we don't get lost by any of it. So I apologize for that, but, but, I, but I want you to see the importance. Jesus' words to them, he says, I'm the one with the power. I know where you live. I know about the Acropolis. I know about the healing center of Escapolis. I know about Asclepius. I know about, about Demeter and Dionysus. And I know about Trajan and Zeus. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I get chills thinking about it. What does that mean? Where Satan has his throne. Satan is referred to in the Bible as the God of this world, little g. The one who's running around and doing what he wants right now because God is, God the Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, they're allowing him to run around and do these things. And so he's got full reign on the earth to go from place to place. He's the one who's in charge. Zeus, the God of this world. Satan in the garden was was described as a serpent. Satan throughout the Bible is described as a serpent. Asclepius. A serpent. 
In, when, when Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the, in, the, um, in the wilderness, one of the things he tried to tempt him to was to turn the rocks into bread. He wanted to give him his grain. He wanted to give him his food, Demeter. Satan is the one who tries to deceive us and to tempt us into sin and debauchery, Dionysus. You're seeing all these different things. And Jesus says, I know where you live. I'm aware. I'm the one who holds seven stars. I'm the one who walks among the churches. I see where you live. You're Christians and you're fighting hard. And I know that you're in the darkest place on the whole planet right now. I've got to come off this just for one second. I want to I explain something to you, to you. Something that you may not have ever thought about before. But Satan is one entity. And he can only be in one place at a time. And Satan must have a headquarters somewhere. And I don't know where he's running it from. But it sure seems, this doesn't just seem like a metaphor when Jesus is talking about where Satan has his throne. Where Satan headquarters. There is a church in the midst of the place where Satan is actually running the show himself. Jesus says, I know where you live. I get it. Yet, you remain true. The word in the Greek, it means to hold fast, to grasp. He says, yet you remain true to my name. You are faithful to me. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas is, um, it's this word, Anti-pass. Here's a rabbit trail, guys. Okay, bear with me. Against pass. Against the Father. Against the Pontifex Maximus was the title of Caesar. It was the title of the one who was in charge. Pontifex Maximus today is, is the title given to the Pope. This name, it could be a name of an actual martyr. There was an actual martyr named Antipas. Or it could be a description of people who are against these, these things. People who are against compromise and against sin and against pagan things. And he says, I, you did not renounce, you didn't give up. You didn't deny your faith in me. In the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, witness, that word witness there is the literal word for martyr, my faithful martyr, the one who gave his life for me, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And you know what they would do? This, this Caesar would come through, and this, this, this guy who had the power of Caesar, he would come through with his sword, and he would decide who he wanted to kill. And if someone said, I am not going to bend the knee to you, Caesar, I'm not going to bend the knee to Zeus, to Dionysus, to Demeter, to trade, trade to anything, He said, I want that person killed. In some of the ways, we don't know exactly how this guy died. But popular opinion has it that he was martyred in the temple at the altar of Zeus. And you know what they would do in there? There was a bronze bull, a hollowed out brazen bull that was big enough that they could put a person inside it and they could tie him up in such a way that his head would go into the head of the bull. And they would light on fire underneath and boil the person alive. They would roast them. Not boil them. They would roast them. 
And as the person is crying out in agony, the voice is coming through the nostrils of the bull as if the bull were coming to life. This is if you were a Christian back in that day, what you had to look forward to when you said, no, I'm not going to compromise. Yet there are people that still live there were faithful to Christ. Not to sound like a jerk, but what's your problem today? What's my problem? Why are we so weak? Why do we compromise and we do? We don't face that. But we could. So that was the good. The good was that they remained true. The Greek for the word remained is to hold, to grasp, to hold tightly to something. They held tightly to Jesus. They held fast to Jesus in the midst of this persecution. And they didn't renounce their faith. They didn't deny him. They, did, they refused to deny him. They refused to not follow him. They refused to be false to themselves knowing that they were followers of Jesus Christ. And he was proud of them. Could Jesus say that about you today? I know where you live. And I'm proud of you for holding fast to me. I'm proud of you for not compromising. That's the good. But in the Bible, there are words. When you see this word, you know something bad is following. What's the first word there? Nevertheless, verse 14, Jesus says, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. All right, let's talk about this person, Balaam. This person, Balaam, was a prophet. And Balak was a, was a pagan king. He came to Balaam and he said, look, I want you to curse God's people there because God is on their side and they're running rampant through the countryside just conquering everything. And I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. So we got to do something because his hand's on them. we got to get his hand off them. So he said, I want you to curse them. And Balaam looked back and he said, look, I can't curse those people. God's got his hand on them. But I do have an idea. Balak, if you can get them to compromise, their faith, their trust in God. You can win. He said, get them, get the men to be seduced by the women, your pagan women. Because when you get them seduced, they're going to be locked in. And they're going to follow the women to the sacrifices of of these idols. They're going to follow into sexual immorality, idol worship, Numbers chapters 25, 6, 7, 31. You can look it up and read the story. It's crazy. But what happened is, Balak did it. And it happened. God's people compromised. They didn't hold fast to his truth. And so, so um, Jesus is writing. He says, nevertheless... There are people there, even though some of you are good, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. And he said, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Earlier he says, I love you guys who hold fast to my name, who hold on tightly. But here he says, he says but uh, there are some who hold on to the wrong things. There are some who hold on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And now this is a little bit tricky, and, and they're not 100% sure on who the Nicolaitans were. But what we do believe is that obviously they were people that compromised. They were people that were in the church that said that they had special knowledge that they heard from God in a way that nobody else could. And what they would do is to say, they would say, well, God told me that this was okay, even if it didn't align with Scripture. And there would be followers who would get in line with them. Do you know the word Nicolaitan is a it's a compound word that comes from the word Nike and laity or Laos. Nike was the goddess of victory. The shoe company Nike, it's where they got their name. The goddess of victory. And do you know what she did? She would crown the champions at the Olympic Games. She would put wreaths on their heads. That's what they believed. And she would, she would fight wars and win. But her whole goal was to do whatever she could to proselytize, to evangelize, to get people to convert to worshiping Zeus. The false god. And the word laity is the people. So, Together, that, that word, the, the, the goddess of victory with the people means conquer the people. The word Balaam, do you know what it means in Hebrew? To destroy the people. Destroyer of people. And so Jesus looks and he says, I see that there are people in there who are destroyers of people and people who are conquerors of people. Friends, Compromise is the destroyer and conqueror of people, of God's church, of his laity. Do not compromise. You see, these people, they would say, we love Jesus, these Christians. I'm not talking about the pagans here. Jesus is talking about people who said that they were Christians, who said that their faith was in Jesus Christ. And yet, when it came time to choose, am I going to buy my grain from this place? Even if it means I have to bend the knee to a false god, I will. They compromised. Well, I want to go to the theater this week. It'll be a good time. It'll be a good... You know, I got friends out here who are pagans, and the only way for them to um, accept me and maybe accept Jesus is if I go partake in the things that they're doing in a sinful way. It's okay to go into the temple of Dionysus. So I get drunk and, and, and have a little fun with a, another person. It's okay. Besides, God told me it was all right. Do you see the slope? Do you see the world that we're living in? Nevertheless, he has these things against him, and it's a picture of compromise. Now, last week I talked about this idea that there's a literal focus of the church in that day, but there's also a church age focus. And as you look at these, as you read these letters, I want you to read them in, in, in order. From Ephesus to Smyrna to, to Pergamum here, and then you're going to see Thyatira, Sardis, and you're, you're going to see it all the way through. 
But I want you to read them in order of time periods as well. Not just specific locations at that time, but time periods in church history. And the time period in church history that this the most looks like is the next one to follow after Smyrna, which is the follow the heavy time of persecution to this time of compromise, A.D. 313 to 517, when Constantine conquered. Constantine professed faith in Christ. He converted to Christianity, and so he just, they, they made the whole Roman world, they converted from paganism to a version of Christianity, the beginning of Catholicism. Rome shifted from pagan to papal. And so what happened? One guy said it was a country and a culture full of half-baked Christians. You see, church and politics mixed. They brought in their pagan beliefs, but then they said they believed in Jesus. And they put them together in this age. And if you go back and look at history of what happened, you can see it's very true. You know, some people that don't quite know history and that are Christians, they think Constantine was a great guy and it was a great time because Christianity was on the rise and it was conquering the world. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Christianity like what Jesus says we should be. It was, it was a pagan profession of faith. And it was compromise. So, that is the church age. So what does Jesus say about this? What does he say is the fix? Well, drop your eyes to Revelation 2.16. Don't worry, we're going to be finished here soon. He says, Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is Jesus' response to their problems of compromise in the church? He says, Repent. And what is this idea of repentance? Well, repentance, some of you, and there have been times in my life where I've been in this boat, some of us, when we hear this word repentance, our blood begins to boil. And we get, get huffy and puffy and we start to get irritated. I can't believe that pastor said that word. Isn't Jesus supposed to love people? Isn't that church supposed to welcome people? Talk about a loveless church. That pastor told me I need to repent. Pastor Andrew didn't tell you. Jesus Christ in his word told you. He said, repent. And the, the reason that we struggle so much with repentance is because we don't completely understand what it is. Well, I've got a couple definitions for you up here so that you can understand. The first hyphenated dash there is the, the Hebrew understanding of, of repent, which is the word shuv, and it's to make a strong turn toward a new course of action or to return to the path. In Hebrew, it was this idea of returning to the path. And if you understand that when God created the world, he created the earth and Adam and Eve, he put us on a path that was righteous and loved him and was all about him the whole way. But something happened called sin and we chose to step off that path and that was sin. And so when we're talking about repentance, it's this idea of getting back on the path and walking in the way that God wants you to walk. And in the Greek, it's this idea of changing a person's mind or purpose for the better. See, a lot of times we think of repent with a negative connotation, but the truth is, biblically, it's all toward a positive thing. It's leaving something negative and turning to something good, who is the good God, the God of good grace. 
And so it's changing our mind. It's not just changing your action. Because if you just change your action and you don't change your mind, you're going to go right back off the path again. But you've got to change your mind. God, change my heart. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. Show me where I'm off the path. And help me to get back on. Repentance is acknowledging there was a problem. It's acknowledging something that we didn't maybe realize before, that we didn't know before, or we refused to acknowledge before. First thing we've got to do is we see the new knowledge that we are off the path. Then we've got regret. I feel bad for what I've done. You see, and this is what happens in Christianity. We acknowledge, I, I did that thing wrong and I feel really bad about it. It's, it's when my daughter slaps my other daughter and then says, I'm sorry. But five minutes later, she slaps her again. Because, yeah, she's sorry, she felt bad, but there was no repentance. There was confession, acknowledgement. In Christianity, we have to confess, acknowledge, we have to, we regret, we understand that what we've done, who we've been outside of God is wrong, and we've got to return to the path. We've got to change the action as a result of a changed and renewed mind. That's repentance. And so when we're talking about repentance, when Jesus says that, it's all this. It's, he's like, turn away from what is wrong. Turn back toward me. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Ephesians 6.17 tells us that, that take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And now, I want to tell you something. As these Christians are reading this, and they're getting this letter in this time when they're living in Satan's city, where Satan lives, and they're being hit on all sides to compromise. I, got, I, got, I just have to do this thing today. I, I know that you won't think it's that bad. But I, but I got to do it because I got I to live, right? I have to have friends. I have to work. He says, I'm going to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. They're remembering this. They're seeing this, and all of a sudden they're getting flashbacks. Wait a minute. There was a letter to the Ephesians that got sent around all over these provinces years ago. And I understand that Jesus is talking about the Word of God. That not only was Him, in the beginning was the Word Jesus Christ, but also was written down in letter form. He says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And what does it mean? So they understand that the word of God is the sword. This is what they understand it to be. The letter to the Hebrews, they remember where it says, for the word of God is alive and active or quick and powerful. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It's, it's not a double-edged sword. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's sharper than the word of the provincial governor who comes in with his sword. It says the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, a lot of times we stop there. It's like, man, that's rough. Word of God. I don't want to read it. A lot of times we stop there on the verse. But the next verse, it crushes us. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. 
everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must, we must give account. The word of God is quick and powerful. Jesus is going to fight against those who compromise in his church with the sword of his mouth, with the word of God, the word in the eyes that see everything. There's nothing getting by him. So we can sit here and tell ourselves that God's okay with me sinning here because it's all for a better, better cause. But it's not. Because the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, will penetrate and tell us it's wrong. And one day Jesus is going to look and say, you knew you were wrong and you did it anyway. I did not like these verses this week. Because Andrew, you've got to repent in some areas. And I don't want to be on the side when I'm looking at Jesus one day and he's like, Andrew, why'd you do it? Why did you compromise? I told you I could see it. I knew your heart. You weren't going to get away with it. But you know what's great about Jesus here? He doesn't come into the letter and say, I'm going to come at you with my sword and fight you. He says, here's your opportunity. Repent. You know, you prayed it this morning. God's grace leads us to repentance. Because of how wonderful God is and what he's done for us, it should point us to repent. God, you're amazing. I can't believe you're giving me this chance. Question is, are we willing to repent? Sometimes we don't. The reason that we compromise could be for various reasons. Sometimes we compromise because we just think to ourselves, it's not a big deal to Jesus. And that's, that's stupid. Okay? I'm going to call it as it, it is a big, sin is sin is sin is sin. A white lie is sin. And if you could understand the gravity of it, you wouldn't do it again. So every sin is a big deal to Jesus. But, but a way that we compromise even more than that is unconsciously, I think. I think we do things that we shouldn't do because we don't know better, because there's a problem in this world called biblical, biblical illiteracy. When you don't know the Word of God, you don't have the light of the Word of God, you don't have the Word of God to hold up to the light when somebody says something that sounds really good and we don't know that it's a lie. When someone says, but it's okay for me to decide if I want to be a man or a woman because it's how I feel and how I feel is okay. And they can make a real, I'm telling you, they can make a really good argument. And if you read it and you don't hold it up to the light and say, what does God's word say about that? Then you miss out and you're confused. And so the only way to tell a counterfeit is to know what's best, to know the truth. In order to, when, when people study in, in the banks and they want to know what a counterfeit dollar is, they don't spend all their time looking at what counterfeit dollars are. They spend all their time looking at what a real dollar is so that they can spot the counterfeit. The problem, the reason we compromise, I believe, more than anything, is not because we say it's not a big deal, because we're just lying to ourselves there. It's because we don't know that God says it's wrong. We think that this thing is okay that we can do, and we shouldn't. But if we're in the Word, God will illuminate and show us what it means. 
Well, we're not in the Word enough because we're going to the theater all the time. We're going to the temple of Dionysus 24-7 and we don't have time for the Word. But, Jesus says, repent because there will be a reward. It says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give the hidden manna. This idea of hidden manna, it's, it's what the Israelites were given in the desert to survive when they didn't have anything. And this manna would fall from the sky and they'd go collect it in the morning and they'd be fed and it was their daily bread. It was the idea of their relationship with God being reconciled and, being, and, and, and they're surviving because of their dependence on God. And when, so when these people see this and they're reading it, when, when everything around them is falling apart and they're constantly being questioned to compromise and, and they see to the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden men, I will support you. And guess what? I will give. One day you're going to be seated with me in the heavenly realm sharing the messianic banquet with me. So it's exciting about when things are made right. It's hold on for the day things are made right. And then he says, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. One of the things that they did in this area was there was a, a, a quarry of, of white rock that they, could, they had a lot of access to. But this idea of this white stone, it was used in multiple ways in this day in Pergamum. One of the ways that it was used is in the court of law. If someone was was held up before a jury and it was time to say, are they innocent or guilty? They, if they held up a white stone, it meant they were innocent. Black stone meant they were guilty. So when they're reading this, they're saying, I will also give that person this, this innocence. They will be made righteous. But it also, this white stone was also used like a ticket to the theater, a ticket to the event. They had to have a white stone with their name on it. It was the only way they could get into the the special special events. And so Jesus says, the only way you're getting into my special event, event, which is better than all of them, is through the white stone that I give you. There were some other uses, but those are the important ones. And we'll have a new name written on it. The day that you gave your life to Jesus Christ, if you have, God wrote a new name for you in heaven. And he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that is your ticket to eternal joy. And he looks at these people and says, you're going you're to have a lot of reasons to want to compromise. I know where you live. I know where you live. I know that Satan's there. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Hold fast. Continue to hold on to me. Grasp onto me and never let go. Because one day, all the suffering that you see in this world, it will not compare to the eternal joy spent with me. We're going to have some awesome, we're going to have better stake than they offer in those temples. Actually, I don't know about steak, because steak requires something to be killed. We're going we're gonna to have better tofu than anything else. God's going to do something special. He says, hold on. So the reward, hidden manna, white stones. As we, as we close today, worship team, come on up. I said that we're going to talk about a literal focus and a church age focus But now it's time for the personal focus, the corporate focus. Okay, let's step away for a second from out of our seats and as if we're all holding hands in this sanctuary right now. What is this church? Is this church compromised in any way? You guys are welcome to stand. Are are we compromised in the way that we live and the way that we act? 
What are we compromising as a church instead of doing what God wants us to do? And we need to fill in the blank there. Individually, Jesus wrote this to individually. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the, Jesus says to the churches. Individually, you've got to ask yourself something. What am I holding on to? What am I grasping and not letting go of? Am I grasping the word of God and not letting it go? Or am I putting it down if I have an opportunity to pick up something else? What am I holding on to? What is my compromise? Where am I compromising in my life? Think of it like this. Compromise may be a point in your life where you're not prioritizing God. Where are we, where are you not prioritizing God? If you have an opportunity to be all in on God in something, and you're choosing something else over that, it's called compromise. If you have an opportunity to grow and train your children into growing up and understanding that there's hidden manna in heaven, that there's a white stone that could be with their name on it, but you're willing to forgo the training in the Word of God for something else, it's called compromise. If you're a husband and you're letting your spouse get away from you to do something other than, than living for the Lord, it's called compromise. What am I compromising? What is my compromise? And the great thing about asking yourselves these questions is you have the opportunity today in this moment to, to repent and return to the path. And when we return to this path, it's not just, oh, I'm sorry, I did a bad thing, I'm going to get back on the path. It's understanding in order to stay on that path, we have to build some guardrails around us. I can't do that thing. I can't go to that place anymore. I can't turn that thing on. I can't listen to that. I can't hang out with that person because I know every time I do, I get off the path. That's not repentance. Repentance means building the walls around so that you continue to stay on the path. But what's great is Jesus comes around and he says, keep fighting to be victorious. Fix your eyes on me, the exalted Savior, because I know where you live. Jesus knows where you live. He knows what's going on in your heart right now. He knows what you're struggling with. And he just says, repent and lean into me. So I'll tell you, as we continue through this series, it's the same story. Jesus says, I'm coming back. So we've got to get ready, be ready, and stay ready for his return. Are you ready? As we sing this song, Blessed Be Your Name, I invite you just to take some time and think about in your heart, answer those questions. Where am I compromising? What am I holding on to that's not Jesus? What am I not prioritizing? How am I not prioritizing God? And just repent. <laughs> Give it all to him. He sees it anyway. He sees it all. Don't hold on.